Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Radio Free Mormon, how are you doing tonight? Good evening, Mr. Bill Briel. How are you doing? It's such a oh. pleasure to see your smiling face. Oh, I am so excited. Tonight is going to be a good night. Um, but we do have to start off with something. We've got about 43 folks here uh, watching. And already? Really? Yeah, there's already 43. They jump in right away. They are ready to rock and roll. Folks, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, we have turned on the super chat. I would love feedback on whether that works or not. RFM, you don't know about this, but what this is going to allow people to do is they can access different features in the chat uh, on YouTube. They can make donations there, by the way. Although I must say, YouTube keeps 70 per, or 30%. Sorry. YouTube keeps 30%. So we'd much rather have you donating uh, at mormonismlive.org. We don't want YouTube taking a chunk off the top. But if, if that's the most convenient way and you're ready to do it, then by all means, put a little money in the, in the coffers on the YouTube channel uh, RFM, today is a special day, by the way. Today is? is Radio Free Mormon's birthday. How did so, you hear about that? I was trying to keep it a secret. I know, but I got word from a common friend of mine, somebody who knows you way, way better than they know me. My ex-wife? I'm not. No, I don't know your ex-wife, and although you do know her, and so that does fit. Um, but we are going to play a little song here. And for the folks who are here, I love it. There was a test one done for $4.99. We saw it go up. So that does work. That is gorgeous. Um, it is Radio Free Mormon's birthday. So for everybody who would like to sing along, we're going to play a little birthday song. so sweet thank you so much i expected the final lyric to be and you look like one too <laughs> and you and you look like one too that is the normal one we are all accustomed to but that is not wow. the one we sing to you happy birthday rfm thank you so much and like i said i was trying to keep it a big secret when i posted it on my facebook page yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a secret. We I know I saw some conversations behind the scenes where we're in text groups together and saw some of that there too. Um, but I, I won't tell you unless you know maybe off the record we get done, I can tell you who it was, but uh, mm. somebody you care about deeply. Well um, so really yeah, yeah, yeah. Little oh, secret from you from, intrigue me, Mr. Yeah, Real. There you go. Well, I'm only 61 years old today, but I feel like 
99. You do? Man, I, I hope you don't feel like 99. That's most but, people 99 aren't even uh, above ground. That's true. So it's a good thing for me. Uh, like Indiana Jones said in the first movie, it's not the years, honey. It's the mileage. That's right. Well, yeah, Harrison Ford before the plane accident, uh, I think was still a, quite a chipper guy. I think that, that accident took a little bit of a toll on him. Tonight, was in an accident? Uh, he had like a little, uh, he was piloting an airplane or something and it crashed. Are you talking about John Denver? No, no, I'm talking about. Uh, uh, Sorry, oh too God. soon. You messed me up. <laughs> Uh, Harrison Ford. You I, I didn't know. You didn't know Harrison Ford was in a plane accident? No, no. Oh, I did not know. You're going to have to do some. I know something. Everybody, I know something RFM didn't know. But now I do. Sorry. Now you do. Now I hope you enjoyed it while it lasted. Okay. It was good. <laughs> we are going to do. There's a really cool video the church yes. put up called How Can It Not Be True? RFM, how can it not be true? So tonight, we're going to start with a little video. We'll play that. And then you and I, I think we could honestly talk about this video for about four hours in spite of the fact that it's only one minute and 15 seconds long and there's not a single spoken word in it. So oh, that's right. You're right. There's no spoken words. There's just little things up on the screen. There's nothing. So here it is for the viewers before we get started. Uh, and by the way, if you see the super chat, feel free to participate. There are emojis there. Uh, different badges and things, if that's the kind of thing that tickles your fancy. Um, but here's the video. Imagine writing a book about an ancient civilization. There must be no research of any kind. It must be 531 pages, more than 300,000 words. There must only be grammatical changes to the first edition. It must be written in the style of various authors. Archaeological evidence supports it. Intellectuals and scholars accept the truth of it. Must finish writing in 65 days. Volunteer missionaries witness the truth of it. How can it not be true? Indeed. How how can it not be true, RFM? That. They, they've laid it all out very clearly in a minute and 15 seconds, and I'm ready to get uh, rebaptized with some first presidency approval. Yeah, you do need that, don't you? I'm going to need that, my friend. You better do that before Elder Holland makes it into the first presidency, because I got a feeling he's going to give you a thumbs down. Uh, yeah, I think Elder Holland and I uh, used to be cordial friends. He even <laughs> once grabbed me by the ear and said, the famous Bill Real, and he grabbed me and shook me by the ear. But those days are long gone, Elder Holland, liar, liar, pants on fire. So with that, um, you, you start us off for a moment. This looked eerily familiar when I saw it, and you recognized along with me exactly where that came from. Give us some background to what this looks a lot like. Oh, sure. Well, this is obviously taken from and condensed from a famous Book of Mormon challenge that was given by Hugh Nibley to his Book of Mormon class at BYU. And he would do this regularly. And I was never in the class, but I read about it in different books, or at least one book that he, he had written. 
So yeah, he would at the beginning of the semester challenge his students to write a book like the Book of Mormon and give it all sorts of parameters and conditions in order to uh, challenge them uh, and try to get them to understand that there's no way they could do it. Yeah, yeah. And and there was lots of little guidelines and things that had to be followed. And this video touches on some of those. It has some unique things that are separate from that as well. And uh, And so what we'll do is we will take this line by line. Uh, I hope that we're not doing any kind of copyright infringement. I think we're literally taking every single section of this and doing journalistic uh, critical review of it. Two and, words, Bill Real. Yes. Fair use. Fair use. And that's that's what we're using on this day. And so I'll put the video back up and uh, let's play here just the first little section and then you and I can kind of riff off on that. That's all we had to do right there. That's the initial start. Yes. That uh, imagine writing a book about mm. an ancient civilization. So let me just share. First off, the rules obviously are not that the civilization need be historical. It, it can be a fictional uh, civilization because we don't have any evidence of uh, the Nephites and Lamanites being real human beings walking on planet Earth. If you're going to put the challenge out and you're going to say, hey, try to write a book about an ancient civilization. The, the reality is because the critic has so much evidence on their side, we have to impose that this civilization need not be historical um, first and foremost. And when we take into account fictional uh, civilizations, there are lots of them that come to mind through books and movies and TV shows. I, I was thinking when I was preparing for this Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, Star Trek, Breaking Bad, Pride and Prejudice, Alice in Wonderland, all of them have multiple characters in them who are operating in a sort of culture, who have rules and boundaries. There are names for the lands that they go to or the planets that they go to. There are rules for the, the geographic locations that they uh, travel to and from. Um, there, there certainly are enough other books and movies out there that do as well or better of a job than the Book of Mormon at giving you a sense of a real group of people in a real culture, in a real geographic location. Uh, so far, I, I'm me personally, and we'll keep score on your end too, so far I don't see this as any kind of proof that Mormonism is true. What are your thoughts on an ancient civilization? Well, I even go for to the first part. Imagine writing a book. Because it's very important to keep in mind that this book was not written by Joseph Smith. He had scribes to do that. He dictated this book. Now, on the one hand, uh, you might think, well, that makes it harder to dictate a book than to write it. But on the other hand, I was listening to the interview of William Davis. I'm pretty sure William's his first name. If not, please forgive me. He authored the recent book, um, Visions in a Seer Stone about his uh, explanation for how it was that Joseph Smith managed to dictate this book and he was being interviewed about it. And it's very common for us, myself too, to talk about writing the Book of Mormon. But he, he, he took exception to that use of that word because he said, now we have to remember it's not written. It was dictated by Joseph Smith. And when you write something, you typically take a long time doing it because as you're writing, 
even as you're writing, you're going back, you're correcting, you're modifying, even on the word processor, you're changing things in order to make it sound better. According to William Davis, who is somewhat of an expert in this, he says that dictating a book actually gets rid of all of that back and forth process and makes it so that it is actually easier if a person has a facility for dictation and storytelling, as Joseph Smith apparently did, to dictate a book than to write it. So that's the first thing on the first line in this video, imagine writing a book. And then you said about an ancient civilization. Before I go there, did you have anything you wanted to say about the writing part? No, but I wanted to, um, you just said something that I wanted to know your source for it. Uh, and I'm trying to remember, cause you, I know I saw it in your notes. Uh, yeah, it's when, uh, about the, the writing part. Uh, man, I don't remember. I'd it's okay. That video. was William Davis, the author of Visions in a Seer Stone, a recent book that came out last year when he was being interviewed by John oh, DeLynn oh. on Mormon Stories. How do we know that Joseph Smith was a good storyteller, RFM? Oh, his mom said so. Oh, that's right. In fact, here at Family Pond, we've got a first edition of Lucy Mack's biography uh, where she talks about primarily Joseph Smith, but also a history of her family. And it's in that book where she says that uh, Joseph Smith would get the family around in the evenings and sit around and tell stories long before the Book of Mormon was ever begun to be translated about these ancient civilizations and what these Nephites and Lamanites were doing. Yeah, and let me go to my notes in there because I actually have a quote from that I love book. It. it was 1845, wasn't it, that she wrote it? I think Is she right? write it. It was definitely after his death and after the saints had gone west, the majority of them and the few had stayed behind in Nauvoo. Yes. Yeah, because I remember seeing that they actually have the, um, I think, the handwritten manuscript of the Joseph Smith Papers Project of all things. So good for them. That's where I got this uh, text. And um, it is very clear from the way she's writing about her son, Joseph Smith, and of course, who would know him better, especially in his childhood years than his own mother. But she talks about contextualizing this in the fall of 1823. Because if you go back and you read it, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but she makes it very clear this is right after he's had his first visit with the angel. And so that's, of course, fall of 1823, which is uh, six years before he dictates the Book of Mormon as we have it today, five years before he does the 116 pages. Anyway, it's a matter of five to six years prior to that. And what she says is this is very famous, right? During our evening conversations, this is Lucy Mack Smith about her son, Joseph. Joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that could be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent, their dress, mode of traveling, and the animals upon which they rode, their cities and their buildings with every particular. This is what she writes about Joseph Smith. She goes on, he would describe their mode of warfare. That doesn't come up in the Book of Mormon, does it? The warfare? Mm. He would describe their mode of warfare as also their religious worship. And then she concludes by saying this he would do with as much ease seemingly as if he had spent his whole life with them. Mm. So that's Lucy Mack Smith writing about Joseph Smith and the recitals that he would give to the family in the evenings as early as the fall of 1823, six years before he dictated the Book of Mormon. <laughs> Maybe that's why Moroni, he left, he had to go, you know, and he's like, oh, hold on, hold on. Let me come back. Let me tell you some more. Let me, because he visited three times that night, right? And once again, the next morning. Very good. And, and in that visitation, maybe that's where all the time was spent, uh, making that whole night come to pass and, you know, sundown, sun up, 
is because he was telling Joseph Smith all these beautiful stories about how him and all the other Nephites and Lamanites operated. Uh, it, it's possible, but you know, this seems visionary. Maybe. <laughs> if, if we're approaching it faithfully, this, this would have to be visionary. It would seem uh, what Joseph is describing would have had to have been seen in some sort of a vision as opposed to communicated to him verbally, whether by an angel or just another person, I would think with this kind of description, but this is uh, six years before the book of Mormon. He was very, very good at this according to his own mother. And she had no compunction about writing this in her history of Joseph Smith. Right. Right. She had no problem telling us that Joseph Smith without having sat down with the plates and translated was a really good storyteller. By the way, Michael B, that is our first YouTube donation there of 999. Happy birthday RFM is the best. Thank you Michael B. You are the boss. Love which is I'm sure what the B stands for. That's right. Love it. All right, should we should we continue on or do you have anything else you want to add on this section? Uh, no, no, no. Well, actually, there probably was because you went to Lucy Max Smith. That's so why I scrolled down in my outline. Let's see. Um, yeah, about an ancient civilization. That is the question. We'll get to there a little bit more with the archaeology comment because so far there appears to be no archaeological evidence to support this large civilization in the New World as described in the Book of Mormon. Um, obviously, there were large civilizations, but none of them appear to be Nephites or um, immigrant Jews right. to the New World. So, um, and I'm just going to say this, okay, because it comes to mind. The apologetic response to this, typically, this absence of evidence where we would kind of expect that you would think there'd be evidence of this huge civilization. Um, but one that I've heard, and I think this is from Brant Gardner, I heard this. How would we know it if we saw it? In other words, how would we know uh, ancient evidence or ruins or anything that is uh, pottery, whatever, that's discovered? How would we know it was Nephite? Even if we saw it, we could be looking at Nephite pottery. We could be looking at Nephite uh, structures. Uh, and we, how would we know that it was Nephite structure? Uh, we could be looking at the archaeological remains of the Nephites and not even know it. So this is a common apologetic response. But when you say that, when you go there for apologetic sake, the problem is, is that it ends up saying that evidence of the Book of Mormon's historicity is indistinguishable from evidence against its historicity. Right. We just can't tell. And once again, this line of argument makes the Book of Mormon indistinguishable from a fraud. Right, which was an argument you've made in multiple episodes that I think gets to the heart of it. The church used to be so dogmatic about imposing all of these answers to all these questions. And then as science and criticism and the internet came about, the church just kept backing away from every one of its claims to the point that you're pointing out, which is that every single point the church stands on a truth claim that's based in a historical event, the reality is the way the church approaches it now is you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a fraudulent book of Abraham and a true book of Abraham. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference between Joseph Smith changing first vision accounts and really not having experienced any of it to just a boy whose memory changes and he tends to emphasize different parts. Um, you've got the uh, LDS Bible translation and Adam Clark's commentary. Uh, we can't tell the difference between plagiarism and direct borrowing. Um, the church is really good at this. And as Are you, you mentioned translation, what's that? Were you going to mention translation too? Oh, yeah, you got translation, which you know could just look like making up a book. Yeah, translation 
uh, is the ever-expanding word as far as its definition goes in Mormon studies. Yeah, I mean, you can't tell the difference between a magic rock and a cell phone anymore in Mormonism. That's right. That's absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Okay, so if if no nothing else, then I will move on to the next one. Okay. Let's do it. So here's the video back up, folks. Let me uh, pull the the comment off the screen and let's go a little further. I'm going to put that back a little bit just so people can see the words while we're talking. Yeah, and it goes on to to complete that sentence of any kind, right? And then oh, next... oh, let's do it here. Yeah. Okay, so now I'll back up so we can see the main part of that, which okay. is the. Okay, so there must be no research. You and I were on the same page when I saw your outline of the things you wanted to talk about. Uh, one of the common things we had is the realization that as early as 1822, Joseph Smith is having conversations with people around him about this ancient civilization that may or may not be fictional. And um, what that means is that from the time the book is published in 1830, or even the time the translation starts, I think, 1827? Uh, I'm so sorry. The translation of the Book, book of Mormon, Mormon as we have it today Martin, was 1829. 1829. Martin Harris, 116 pages, which you'll talk about in a moment. That's 28. Um, 1828. So 1828, the book, the translation starts at least in some way. 1829, the Book of Mormon, as we have it today, the translation begins. As early as 1822, Joseph starts talking about there's a book in a hill that is deposited. Um, and, and one of the ways we know that is because it happens before uh, Alvin Smith dies. He's told by the angel Moroni, he has to take Alvin with him to the hill to get the plates and I think Alvin Smith dies, if I'm not mistaken, in early 1823. And, and so with uh, essentially six, seven, eight years of time to plan out the book, uh, I don't think that there is any reason that we have to agree that there could be no research. RFM, your thoughts on what other ways Joseph could have been researching? Uh, just to clarify the record, November 19th, 1823 was the death date of Alvin Smith, Joseph Smith's older brother. Yeah, I think it happened after the first time that Joseph Smith went to the hill and he was told the second time that he was supposed to bring his brother and that became problematic when his brother died in the interim. Perfect. And there may or may not have been, you know, any kind of attempted exhumation of his body. We don't have to go there. No, no, no. <laughs> hand. Yeah, in order to bring a piece of him. Yeah. So, um, but, oh, yes, there must be no research of any kind. Well, you know, when you're talking about 1822, I'm also thinking there's so much that's in the Book of Mormon. Uh, first off, that is, well, it's obviously from Joseph Smith's environment. Okay. I think anybody who has studied it with any degree of depth comes to that conclusion for at least part of it and probably large, par large parts of it, if not all of it. But, you know, there's all these sermons in the Book of Mormon which reflect good Orthodox Methodist theology of Joseph Smith's day. We know he uh, was partial to the Methodist. He became an exhorter in the Methodist church. And according to his own first vision account, prior to 1820, he's going to all the different churches and attending them as often as occasion would permit. So is that research when you're going to have sermons, Methodist sermons in uh, the Book of Mormon? I think it could be characterized that way. Just, you know, going to books doesn't, uh, that's not the only way to research something. Um, 
Let me also say that research may have also been the themes in the view of the Hebrews, which I read recently and did a podcast with John DeLins, three Great and a half hours long. Oh, beautiful. Loved it. Thank you. It went up last Friday. It's already 10,000 views, believe it or not. So it right. has some popularity, but the two main themes from view of the Hebrews and in Joseph Smith's entire society, not just that one book, there were dozens of books that talked about the same thing. It was, believe me, in the air. Number one, that Native Americans um, had, it's an origin story for the Native Americans, their origin being that they descended from ancient Hebrews who came to this continent and established their civilization here. We are broadcast, I am broadcasting from the United States of America, so there's no confusion for our viewers around the world. This continent, United States, and two, that at some point these tribes separated into two main tribes. One was civilized and cultured, and the other was uncivilized and barbaric. And there were wars between the two, because when you're uncivilized, you just hate those civilized people. I mean, it kind of goes with the, the territory, I guess. <laughs> and so eventually uh, the uncivilized uh, tribe destroyed the civilized tribe. And this is view of the Hebrews. This is what's generally understood in Joseph Smith's day. And we find the in these major themes, this is exactly, of course, what the Book of Mormon talks about. Also, research Adam Clark's Bible commentary. There are indications and there is research coming forth um, in short order, which is going to demonstrate that not only did Joseph Smith rely on the Adam Clark Bible commentary for his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, which uh, started, I think, in June of 1830 after the Book of Mormon came off the press but that also the Book of Mormon itself shows clear indications of the Adam Clark Bible commentary being relied upon in order to dictate or write, produce the Book of Mormon. So there is lots and lots of research and the Bible itself for crying out loud. I mean, how many chapters in the Book of Mormon are from the King James Version of the Bible? A lot and a lot of Isaiah and three chapters of Matthew from Sermon on the Mount and other things here and there. Would you call that research? I would. So there's lots of research that Joseph Smith was obviously doing. Whoever wrote the Book of Mormon obviously researched it heavily prior to it coming forth. Otherwise, it would not have reflected so accurately Joseph Smith's culture. And it wouldn't have all of these different um, elements in it that connect with other books, both biblical and commentaries. Yeah. And, and you're pointing out some of the things, a couple of other things is that in that same book that we have here at Family Pawn, there is a Lucy Mack sharing a dream from her husband, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. And that dream is deeply similar to the tree of life dream that Nephi and Lehi uh, share in where Nephi is given the interpretation and his father is not. Um, it's also noticed here, uh, Sumner Brent uh, his comment, if if you're writing a fictional story about a civilization that doesn't really exist for which there's no evidence for, then you, there really isn't a lot of research needed, right? Like, like J.R. Tolkien didn't have to research the lands or the characters that he put into Lord of the Rings. Rather, he just has to keep a coherent story uh, either in his mind or as he puts it down on paper. That's a good point. What unfortunately ends up happening with the Book of Mormon, this is an, an analogy and analogy. Uh, that I just came up with, but um, it's as if basically everybody in our society believes that the moon is inhabited and whether or not it's with guys who are uniformly six foot tall and dress after the Quaker style, 
right? But you know, we've got all this whole mythos about the moon being inhabited and the people there and what they do and what they've done. And then I produce a book that matches the common cultural belief about men on the moon and what they've done and what they look like. And it's very popular because it's reaffirming what everybody understands or what a large portion of the society understands. So it's very, very popular. And then 200 years goes by and science has eclipsed that understanding of people on the moon. And now science understands, no, there were no people on the moon there. It's uninhabited. It's arid. It's desert, barren, blah, blah, blah. Right. But you still got this book. Right. That talks about people on the moon. Right. And it's now scripture. And it's uh, the what is it, the keystone of the religion, right? The foundation of people's testimony. So while everybody else in society 200 years later has left believing that there's men on the moon, uh, you've got this one group of people who are dedicated by necessity to having to hold on to that belief and try and prove it true. And that's where apologists enter stage left. Yeah. And it should note here, uh, Jen Smith-Nielsen makes the comment, which is that as the Book of Mormon relates prophecy, for instance, it does a really good job of relating prophecy prior to Joseph Smith and contemporaries to Joseph Smith. It does a really piss poor job of creating any prophecy at all other than Jesus is going to come back um, once Joseph Smith is actually in the moment that he's in. Anything forward beyond that, there is no good prophecy for. So again, if you're just borrowing from other sources in your milieu, your cultural context, your dad's dreams, your relationships with your brothers, the sermons in your neighborhood, uh, the geography around you, then then you really don't need to be super uh, intelligent in terms of information stored in your brain, too super knowledgeable about the knowledge base that's available in the world. Yeah, that rem reminds me of a song what you just said. What are the sermons in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood? In your neighborhood? I love it. That nice. reminds me, yeah, good old Sesame Street, good old Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. Yeah, and by the way, just to be very clear, and I think most people are, Lucy Mack Smith talks about her husband having that dream of the Tree of Life way before the Book of Mormon was written. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, here's another one, by the way. We'll put these up as they happen. Scott Purves, good friend, uh, talked to him several times. There's $20 to Mormonism Live. Have a beer on me, RFM. Happy birthday. Thank you. That's going to be one big beer, and I will drink it right. in your honor. You could even go to a professional sporting event and probably get two of them. Cool. Thank you. I understand it's really good beer, too. Yeah, yeah. Super cool. Um, anything else on this section? Uh, I don't think so. Hang on. Let me, I, no, no, no. Not on this section at all. all right. or, do I? No, you got the next one about 531 pages. Here we go. Let's do it. Let me put it all the way up on the screen and... Yes. We probably ought to put this one with it, right? Yes. There you go. It must be 531 pages, more than 300,000 words, and most of them, and it came to pass. How many pages was Lord of the Rings? <laughs> How many pages? I think I, it's 1171 pages is the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. And remember, there are spots of time in between writing. Joseph isn't just write, dictating the entire time, day in and day out. 
Rather, as there are times where they're not doing it, they're going out by the river and throwing rocks, they're breaking away from the work. But there are other uh, literary works that are considered much higher on a pedestal than the chloroform and print that Mark Twain referred to the Book of Mormon as that have more pages and more words. RFM, what is your thought on needing to be 531 pages? Is that 531 pages exactly? Can we have a 530-page book or a 532-page book? Or does the 531 make it miraculous? And what about the 300,000 words? Well, now you get to this point. By the way, um, Lord of the Rings, I can't give you a page count, but it's technically six books contained in three volumes, as it's usually published. Each volume has is contains two books. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and by just the way, anybody didn't know I was a, a nerd. One little note, too, that should be talked about in the previous thing and tied into this, which is J.R. Tolkien had complicated characters who had to wrestle with complicated issues. Uh, the Book of Mormon, other than maybe Nephi, and somebody else mentioned this, by the way, in the comments, and I'm, it's too far up there for me to go pull it back, but it reminded me of it. And by the way, it's Jim De Bennett's dad who wrote the book, and I can't remember what the name of the book was. It's, I read it, but uh, I can't remember the name of it either. But the book uh, posits that Nephi was a complicated character, and we get a very different Nephi before Lehi's death and after. And he wrote the book and shared these examples as evidence that the Book of Mormon was true. And so the comment earlier on reminded me of that. The Book of Mormon generally has very binary black and white characters. And I don't mean that in color sense. I mean that in the sense that these are simple characters. They're either good or they're bad. They don't really have a lot of complexity to them. And even Nephi, uh, with that little bit of complexity, it really wasn't that much compared to things like J.R. Tolkien. Yeah, the way I think of it is that Book of Mormon characters are typically like DC comics yeah. characters. They're two-dimensional. They're cardboard. My apologies to John DeLynn, who really likes, hey, thank you so much. Re, 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 silver. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but thank you. Much yeah. love back to you too. Uh, apologies to John DeLynn because he likes DC, but Marvel tip tends to be a little bit more complicated. I mean, a little more in depth. We are talking about comic book characters yeah. here. Um, and I think that probably what um, Rick Bennett was talking about, I read the book a few years ago. He basically comes down with the evidence and says, it's kind of 50, 50, you know, it's up in the air. That's where faith comes in. So, uh, but second Nephi chapter four, Nephi Psalm, where you get the inside scoop on what Nephi is dealing with and his personal feelings and that he suffers from feelings of inadequacy and guilt. Um, I think that's cool. I think that's valuable. So I do think that he exhibits more depth than pretty much any other character in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And I think it's Bob Bennett. I just looked it up. It is Leap of Faith. Leap of, um, Leap of Faith, Bob Bennett. So, by the way, it was a great book. It, in my earlier stages of being a Mormon, it was a beautiful book as I was beginning to wrestle with possibilities that the church may not be what it claimed to be. It was probably 15, maybe 17 years ago that I read that book and loved uh, what it offered, kind of a, a deeper, more complex look at some of the, the things going on in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I, and I I read it not to that many years ago, and at it didn't grab me, but I could see what he was doing. And I felt like he was approaching it uh, from an intellectually honest point of view. Yeah. And so I appreciated that. Okay. So, so far the uh, let's just be sure here. So, so far a writing a book about an ancient civilization, just because you're doing that, the civilization may or may not be real or true or, or uh, historical. So that doesn't really prove the book of Mormon true. Um, the second one is there must be no research, but we just showed that there actually is plenty of time and 
various concepts that actually do add to the label of research being done. Um, and then obviously personal experience is research in, in a way, if that's what you're writing about. Right. The Book of Mormon itself attests to all the research that was done to write it. Yeah. The fact that it was 531 pages or 300,000 words, neither one of those really proved the book true. There's plenty of other works that have those. Right. And when you were talking about it, it can be 530 pages, you're getting to this um, idea that this is an artificial number. Now, 531 is how many pages it has in the current edition, which originally yeah. published, it was 600. Yeah. It was 600 pages because you didn't have the double columns and the footnotes at the bottom, right? right? right. And the tiny, tiny print. It was written more like a, a, a novel. Yeah. Uh, with full paragraphs all the way across the page. And I've read that. Um, it was, of course, uh, not the original, but it was a duplicate version of the original 1830, to 1830 Book of Mormon. But this whole idea about how big it is, right? I mean, does big, does size matter? Is sort of the question that we're asking. In other words, if it were 10 pages, let's go from 530 down to 10. If it were 10 pages, would that be as amazing? Probably not. It's sort of the size that they're going for, that it's so big that this weighs in its favor. I mean, I spent um, a lot of time in Texas, and I hope that everybody from Texas will forgive me, but I, me and Texas didn't get along too well together because of the climate. And I would talk to people about Texas. they say, how do you like Texas? And I'd say, well, it's hot, it's ugly, and it's nasty. But there's a lot of it. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Texas. Yeah, there's a lot of it. And if you love it, great, because you got a lot. But if you're like me, who really didn't like it, the fact that there's a lot of it is not an endearing quality. Right, right. Um, also, you wanted to talk about for a moment, I think this is an important part place to put it. You wanted to talk for a moment about really is, is the creative product coming from the mind of Joseph Smith, whether it's from God or just his imagination, is the is the creative product or another another author right Sidney Rigdon or Solomon Spaulding or some of that nonsense but but really how much of the book of mormon is the product of Joseph Smith well the deal is is that i mean in the current version they have taken out so many iterations of it came, and it came to pass yeah. that i was shocked to find out that they took out so many cuz there's still so many in there yeah so you get kind of tired of reading and it came to pass and when i read the book of mormon i just kind of you know over it I don't actually sound out the words in my head. It's just sort of a, a filler. But uh, people who have gone and looked at the Book of Mormon and done some basic analysis of statistics talk about how much the Bible appears in the Book of Mormon. We all know about Isaiah. It's here. It's there. It's a lot in Second Nephi, right? Um, but the analysis that was done by one person is that approximately 15.5% of the Book of Mormon text is actually quoting almost verbatim from the King James Version Bible. And I went back and I tried to do the math on that. And I think that's a little bit more than one seventh. Because mm. if you take seven and multiply it by 15, I think you get 105. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -mm, sounds good. Okay. So I think that's a little bit more than, uh, or maybe it's a little, no, I think it's a little bit more than 7%. So really what you're saying is that if this is correct, and I think it probably is, uh, basically for every seven chapters on average that you have in the Book of Mormon, one of those is going to be a Bible chapter. Mm. So we're reducing by this, this size in terms of original creative content on the part of the author. So it's really only like six sevenths as big as it seems. People would say, well, that's, that's plenty right there. That's plenty. And yeah, by the way, I've got to say something here. Okay. Let, let me be clear. I think the, the book of Mormon is a remarkable book. 
The way it was produced was remarkable. Amen. There's not a whole lot of books around that can put be put in that category. Uh, there actually are some. <laughs> Contrary to what I would have said before as an apologist in my ignorance of other similarly produced books. But yeah, it's a remarkable accomplishment. And I think that it doesn't hurt to acknowledge what I think is obvious. So, but the, then the question becomes, is a remarkable accomplishment something that means that it is divinely inspired or that the only explanation for it is that uh, it came from God and it was dictated by the gift and the power of God. And that's the question. And that's the question for some people. They'll say yes. Other people will come down on a different side of that. But I was looking this up about percentages and everything in the Book of Mormon. And I came upon this interesting paper, which I had never seen before. And it's published by the International Organization of Scientific Research. That's the IOSR. It was February of 2017. And it's called New Testament Words and Quotations in the Book of Mormon. So if you want to look it up, you can look up IOSR. That's I-O-S-R. New Testament Words and Quotations in the Book of Mormon. It's by a fellow named Terrence L. Chambers. He's a PhD at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. And I haven't had a chance to read this paper. It's quite lengthy. It goes into a lot of computer analysis of the Book of Mormon. But the abstract says this. This paper identifies 441. That's 441. Phrases in the Book of Mormon that are seven words long or longer, so it's seven consecutive words or longer, that are common to the Book of Mormon and the New Testament, but that are not found in the Old Testament. Mm. Mm. And, he, and I read enough in there to find out he takes things like, and it came to pass that this happened, things that you know kind of artificially get you there to the, um, the seven words. He doesn't count those. He says those really aren't valid for counting because they're just, they're meaningless. They don't really have a lot of substance to them. He's looking at 441 phrases that are substantive in the Book of Mormon, seven words in a row or longer that are common to the Book of Mormon as well as to the New Testament. Yeah. So when you're talking about that, we're talking about a lot more Bible material that's in the Book of Mormon than just the chapters from the Bible that are quoted almost verbatim. Yeah, so uh, give me the, the last name of Terrence one more time. Chambers. Chambers. I'm going to put that in the comments here so that everybody can at least have a record of that so they can look it up. And I, I included the link in my notes that I shipped to you, just cool. so you know. Yeah, cool, cool. And I'll put those notes in the resources of the episode on the podcast as well. Um, so if we take out, and it came to pass. If we, yeah, I think it was Mark Twain who said, if you took out all the instances, if it came to pass, the Book of Mormon would be a small pamphlet. <laughs> and obviously there's some humor to that, right? Like there is right. more than that, but, but he does make the point that it's significant. If you take out the, and it came to pass, if you take out the, all the books of, you know, chapters of Isaiah and anything else that's old Testament being shared. If you take out those 441 phrases uh, of new Testament material, that book ends up probably being about a 350 page book or so. Right. I think that's probably fair to say. Okay. And let me add to it too. There's a little thing that needs to be said about this idea of 441 phrases in the New Testament, which is, as we're going to talk about here later on about anachronisms, it should be noted that the New Testament is written long after any Book of Mormon prophet would have had a chance to work with uh, that text or know about it. Now, obviously, um, if we're talking about when Jesus comes to the Americas, he could maybe share a little bit of the same teachings 
but there shouldn't be a giant overlap of material from the New Testament found in the Book of Mormon because it is anachronistic. It either A, most of those authors lived long before the New Testament was written, and number two, even those who lived during the time the New Testament was or after, they had very little access to those writings because they lived on an entirely different continent. According to the narrative of the Book of Mormon, this is how much access they had to the New Testament. I remember. Oh, sorry. That was not supposed to happen. You're good. Okay. Anybody in the Book of Mormon, any character in the Book of Mormon had this much access to the New Testament, whether right. they lived before or after it was written. Yeah. In the New World. So it should be noted that finding 441 phrases, seven words or longer, that are common between the New Testament and the Book of Mormon is an indication of something and that something is not a historical product in the Book of Mormon. It's an indication of why the definition of translation has to be expanded even further. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Anything else here? No, you're going to go to the next one about gra grammar. Yeah, here we go. Oh, you can complete. There you go. There must be only grammatical changes to the first edition. Yeah, there must only be grammatical changes to the first edition. Let me pull something up here. Let me uh, let me put us both up on the screen. Let me get rid of uh, some of this. And uh, nope, I don't have a page for it. But what I do have is the scriptural references. It's Mosiah chapter 21, verse 28. You also made note of this, Ether chapter 4, verse 1. This was one of the very early problems I encountered when I joined the church back in 1996. Um, one of the things I read on Book of Mormon Answer Man was why was there a change? And the specific change is that after Benjamin is dead, Benjamin is still mentioned in two places in the Book of Mormon as being the guy you have to go to to look at the uh, Jaredite plates, if I'm not mistaken, right? Am I saying that right? Oh, you're muted. Jaredite plates. Uh, I don't know if I haven't actually read those passages in preparation, but I know what you're talking about, the Jaredite gold plates at 24. Yeah. And so um, I, I should have probably gone back and read my Book of Mormon. I promised myself I'd never read much from it ever again. But there is a point where Benjamin is the king um, and then he dies and then Mosiah becomes the king. And then there are still two references in the first edition in Mosiah chapter 21, 28, which now reads Mosiah, and Ether chapter 4, 1, which now reads Mosiah. And Mosiah 21, 28, for the benefit of the audience, now reads, And now Limhi was again filled with joy on learning from the mouth of Ammon that King Mosiah had a gift from God whereby he could interpret such engravings, those the engravings on the Jaredite plates. And that was originally that um, Limhi was filled with joy on learning from the mouth of Ammon that King Benjamin. Yeah had a gift from God whereby he could interpret such engravings. That's why they changed it subsequently. I think Joseph Smith did it maybe in the 1837 or 1840 edition from Benjamin to Mosiah. And by the way, that's a very fun rabbit hole. There are apologetic responses to why that happened. Um, but I, I simply want to note that this is one of, I don't want to say many, but it is one of certainly a significant number of changes that are not grammatical changes to the Book of Mormon. 
right? Like there are lots of changes that happen from the first edition to the second edition and subsequent editions that have to do with clarifying Godhead, changing uh, white and delightsome to pure and delightsome. There are lots of changes that are not grammatical. And for the church here in this video to say only grammatical changes seems like it is very close to flirting with the line of dishonesty. Well, yeah, they are act, they're actually being dishonest, unfortunately. Sometimes you have to sacrifice uh, accuracy for brevity. Yeah. <laughs> At least that's my defense for this video, and I'm sticking with it. But, but the deal is, is that I went and looked this up, and actually what is in this video, it says there must be only grammatical changes to the first edition. It doesn't just contradict what uh, others say about the Book of Mormon. It contradicts what the church itself has published about the Book of Mormon. And what I found was an Enzyme magazine article from December of 1983, Richard by, written by George Horton, called Understanding Textual Changes in the Book of Mormon. And he first off talks about how, you know, the, the thousands of them actually are grammatical. And overwhelmingly, mm -hmm. they're grammatical. Uh, but then in his article, this is in the church magazine okay and he mentions these other things a few other changes involving meaning appear to be more significant in second nephi 30 and 6 white appeared in the 1830 and 1837 editions joseph smith changed this word to pure in the 1840 edition that's the white and delightsome to pure and delightsome that you're talking about um and then it goes on guess what it includes in Mosiah 21, 28, and Ether 4, 1, the first edition had Benjamin, where the name of, of Mosiah now appears. In fact, King Benjamin would not likely have still been living in the historical period described by these verses. In the 1837 edition, the prophet Joseph made this correction. So uh, he goes on beyond this, but what I'm trying to point out here is that right now this church-produced video is contra contradicting this church-produced article in the church magazine in 1983 and then uh, i'll skip a paragraph and then he says um over the years a few hundred deletions a few hundred deletions have also been made primarily to improve the book grammatically the most commonly eliminated have been the words that which was 188 of those got deleted the 48 of those got deleted it came to pass 46 of them and then a few other words which i won't go into but then he also mentions uh, additions, additions to the text. They have been less numerous, probably less than 100. So he's guessing that there are less than 100, which lets you know it's probably in the 90s. Um, that additions have been made to the text. And these are small words too. So they're not really that big, but he goes on. He said, these are not true additions, but now he's going to talk about true additions, right? In a few places, however, Joseph Smith did intentionally add to the text to clarify a point. An illustration of this is the added words, the son of, in 1 Nephi eleven twenty one, and also in verse 32 and chapter 13, verse 40. So that's three different places where the son of was added to God to make God the son of God. And mainly, I think that's where it's talking about uh, Nephi sees in vision Mary, mm -hmm. who is the mother of God, which is what it said in the original Book of Mormon. Those got changed to the son of God. So the son of was added. And this is what this church magazine correctly characterizes as adding words to the text to clarify a point. Do we know if the Methodists believe in a trinity? 
Well, everybody and their dog believes in the yeah. Trinity. So since three twenty-five, anyway, more Trinity type of view. Um, somebody here asked, by the way, one, two, three. M. Neil asked, "How much of the first edition do we have to verify this claim?" I think, if I'm not mistaken, RFM, we have the entire printer's manuscript, and then we have a few little bits and pieces of the actual uh, original dictation that Oliver Cowdery and other scribes would have written down. That manuscript was put into, I think, a cornerstone of the mansion house in Nauvoo. And when they found it, it was essentially in in uh, rambles. It was just not it was it was water damaged. Yeah, it was badly deteriorated. And other than little sections here or there, there really wasn't anything they could do to salvage that. But we do have the entire, I think, printer's manuscript that Oliver Cowdery took to the Grandin printing press. And hence, uh, we do have the the words um, as they were copied over, there's no reason for him to copy over Mosiah uh, or Benjamin when the word on the other paper is Mosiah. That seems like that the more logical, rational mistake is that uh, when they copied over the original transcript or manuscript over to the printer's manuscript, they absolutely verbatim copied over Benjamin to Benjamin rather than Mosiah to Benjamin making a, a, a just a mistake copying one text over to another piece of paper. Yeah, and all this has been, I think, based off the 1830 published account, as opposed to going back to the original manuscript, which I think there's a, a quarter to a third that survived. Yeah, um, probably in the middle. I can't remember exactly where it is, but Royal Skousen has done a ton of research on this and published it as far as what that originally said and what is extant of the original manuscript and comparing with the printer's manuscript, et cetera, et cetera. I've right. got a feeling, though, I'm going to go out on a limb here. And I'm going to say that because uh, I have never heard an apologetic argument about Benjamin versus Mosiah being, well, we don't have the original manuscript for that section. I'm going to guess that we have that. Uh, we might. Nobody wants to talk about that, right? Nobody wants to say what sections we do have and make images of them so that you and I can compare. And by the way, just a little note there, uh, mighty... Rianon, they should have put the manuscript in Tupperware before putting it in the cornerstone. Yeah. That's another anachronism. If we would have had Tupperware uh, before Tupperware was invented, uh, when they put it in the Nauvoo Mansion House uh, cornerstone, that would have been a telltale sign that that was a late uh, added in. That might have been a Mark Hoffman idea. Yeah. No, he was too no, good for that. Smart, wasn't he? <laughs> he was, yeah. <laughs> no Tupperware for Mark Hoffman. <laughs> Okay. Anything else on this section? Oh, let's see. No, I don't think so. Cause we're getting to the next thing about various authors. Okay. And then I've got a little segment here. I'd like to, to show us for that. So with no uh, further ado, uh, here we go back to the video. It must be written in the style of the various authors that are claimed to have written the text. Um, there's a major issue with this. And let me just, uh, let me share a little bit of my two cents here. I was looking up this morning, the computer analysis. And um, in 1979, there was a study at Brigham Young University where the BYU researchers concluded that every author was its own independent author. So Mosiah's text, uh, word style analysis, his word use was very unique and different from uh, Alma, very different and unique from Nephi, very different and unique from Moroni, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, 
take it with a grain of salt. I would expect the BYU research to come down on that end. It would be devastating if BYU did a, uh, a handwriting analysis and concluded that it was all one author and it matched Joseph Smith's word usage. That would be, that would not go well. That would be, that would be a defunded BYU by the first presidency, right? Two words, loose translation. Okay. Loose translation. There we go. Uh, There was a subsequent British analysis uh, that was done by a non-Mormon, David Holmes. I know this study had some issues, but uh, he concluded uh, that it was, uh, let's see here. We may summarize by noting that the analysis shown that Joseph Smith and Isaiah samples from distinct and separate clusters, whereas all samples tend to cluster together. Um, It's my conclusion from the results of this research that the supporting historical evidence that the Book of Mormon sprang from the prophetic voice of Joseph Smith himself, as did his revelations and the text of the Book of Abraham. We have seen this. Uh, we have seen that the style of his prophetic voice as evidenced by the main cluster of the text, sorry, the textual sample studied differs from the style of his personal writings or dictations of personal nature. And then there was an informal analysis. By the way, can, oh, can you break that down for me? Because what I'm hearing, uh, I'm trying to understand this. It sounds like he's saying that there's there's one uniform style for Joseph Smith's personal writings that he did and one uniform style for the things that he claimed to be revelation. Yeah, essentially, I think the main thing they would go back into was looking at the DNC. And what they found was that when Joseph is dictating material, there is an overlap of similarity between anything that he would dictate during the course of his life when compared to the dictation of the Book of Mormon. And again, I think you pointed to this in the beginning. We have to treat dictation different than we do somebody writing down their own thoughts. It is a different process. And so what he's concluding is that when Joseph Smith dictated, and we know it's Joseph Smith dictating, there is a deep similarity between that and the dictation that we have as the Book of Mormon. Um, There was an informal analysis done by Gerald and Sandra Tanner of Joseph Smith's style. Um, The Tanners selected the Book of Alma, chapter two at random. They found that 62% of the sentences begin with for, and, or but. Um, It's noted here, uh, Mormon scholar Eleanor H. Partridge Commenting on Joseph Smith's style of writing, Joseph Smith's style is characteristically marked by a series of related ideas joined by simple conjunctions and but for in his handwritten manuscripts, he used neither punctuation nor capitalization as sentence markers when his writing had been edited or when someone else wrote the words which he dictated. The result is an unusually large number of sentences beginning with for and or but. And then I'll put this up here on the screen. Um, those were the three that this particular article noted. If we go over to uh, Book of Mormon Central, they also talk about a few other studies that happened. They point out some issues with the David Holmes study. Uh, I'm marking there kind of, uh, I can just highlight it actually here. They're, they're marking some issues with that. And I'll say, by the way, in this entire one minute and 15 second video, I think this is actually the strongest, this is the strongest, I think, evidence of all the ones that are pointed out here of the Book of Mormon being historical. They also note there were some other studies that came after. There's the Hilton study. There's the Jockers study. There's the Field study. And each of these, to one degree or another, also point to multiple authors or at the very minimum that the author is not Joseph Smith. But now I want to share a little video 
And let me, I'll ask you too, do you have any comments here before I show a video that explains perhaps why there is some difference in the dictation of Joseph Smith um, in the Book of Mormon, accounting for why we might perceive different authors? Oh, no, go ahead. Mine would be a little bit different. Okay. Um, so let, before I, let's see here, I need to at least explain a little context. So there was a book that came out, the Urantia text. I'm not familiar with this RFM. Are you? Are you familiar with this book? Yeah, I've read a little bit of it. Okay. This book is, it's a long text, by the way. This is it's massive. 163 pages. So this is a 2,163 page book. It's like the Joseph Smith papers. It's like this big. Yeah. It is, it is imposed on you. If you're the reader, it's imposed on you as having come from multiple spiritual beings who are giving you the answers and context of the universal questions we all want to know. Where do we come from? All that kind of stuff. They're answering how energy works. They're answering what goes on on other planets and other star systems. And to this day, there is no understanding of exactly where this came from. Um, we, it's essentially a mystery. There's also a rewriting uh, in a large section of many Bible stories. Yeah. And so you do get some overlap where Bible stories are shared. The, this text... When they did a handwriting analysis, it also showed that each of the authors have their own unique writing style. So that's to note. And the reason I say that is because this next clip is going to start off uh, with the Urantia text as the backdrop. Wow. And so here we go. Beings have statistically distinct word patterns. So you can, by, by analyzing the word patterns between these two, these five different beings, you can tell that there's five different beings speaking. But if it's a hoax, it would take multiple conspirators, making it more likely someone would eventually come forward with the truth. So what's going on with the Urantia text is basically the same problem we have with the Book of Mormon. They're trying to figure out, is it multiple authors or one author? They did, some they did a few analyses on it, and they found that there's distinct word patterns within it. Now, LDS scholars have done the same thing. And they found that Alma is distinct from Mosiah. Um, Nephi is distinct from Moroni, and Moroni is distinct from Mormon. So there's a, a lot of, um, of evidence for the Book of Mormon in that sense. And a lot, I, I noticed a lot on the forums and blogs, a lot of the, the LDS Latter-day Saints will say that this is significant and proof that the Book of Mormon is true. It also applies to the Urantia text. So what's, what's going on? Do we have Sidney Rigdon writing one chapter and, and Joseph Smith writing another one and Solomon Spaulding writing another one? Um, well, there's something called stylistic drift. What if there was one author? What would we expect? With stylistic drift, the theory is that while you're dictating or writing a text, your conversation is changing through time. So what you're talking about at the beginning of the book is going to be different than what's at the end of the book. So you're slowly progressing and evolving through time, which means that um, with multiple authors, you'd see this one. With one author, you'd see the one on the right. So this is a good way to determine if it's multiple authors or one. And just as a side note, really a crazy side effect about this. Nobody knew about stylistic drift when they did the Alma and Moroni and Mormon and, uh, and, um, and Mosiah when they're comparing all of the, the different parts of the Book of Mormon. Nobody really knew about that. It's fairly new. So this is what might happen if it were a single author. If you took one slice of the Book of Mormon here and one slice of the Book of Mormon here, 
the conversation is going to be significantly different because they're spaced in time because of stylistic drift, which means when you compare both of those together, they'll look like two unique voices. So they applied this. The, the Christopher Smith actually applied this to the Urantia text. The Urantia text has one author, even though the stylistic patterns show up as multiple authors. So using stylistic drift, you can determine that the Urantia text had one author, which makes sense from a conspiracy perspective, because conspiracies, the more people that are involved, the harder it is to keep their mouths shut. Stylistic drift does occur in the Book of Mormon in dictation order, and I don't have time to explain all of the details on that. So I'm going to play a little bit more, but I want to just explain really quick. The Book of Mormon's actual written order of author to author to author is not the same as the order if you start at page one and you work your way through. After the 116 pages are lost, it is believed the best of our scholars agree that Joseph picks up with essentially uh, going forward from that point and then coming back and then having Nephi and uh, uh, the brothers, uh, Jacob, and what's the other one? Uh, Joseph? Yeah, Jacob and Joseph. So I think Jacob writes a significant portion. And then there's a bunch of little authors that come in. And then Mormon and Moroni come in and talk about the abridgment. And then it moves forward. It's when those, it's when Moroni, or sorry, when Mormon is talking about the abridgment, and, and it's that point, from that point forward after Mormon, that the Book of Mormon actually starts. And so when you follow it in the actual chronological order of when the text was translated, then what we see is a pretty clear pattern of stylistic drift. So I just wanted to note that before we finish this off. That's fascinating. I was not aware of this. So I've certainly heard of Chris Smith and I knew that he did some work on this. I did not know that the Book of Mormon, when you do a stylometric analysis of it, what it tends to indicate is stylistic drift of one author as opposed to actual multiple authors. Yeah. And if it is multiple authors, we would not expect to see the data data back up that the stylistic drift or one author slightly changing over time follows in the exact order of the Book of Mormon authors in the order that they are believed to um, have essentially been translated in um, from the gold plates onto the uh, manuscript. That is fascinating to me. Were you done with that part? Yeah, just that part. I'm going to, I'll play a couple more seconds here of it and then okay. we'll wrap up. Okay. But this is evidence that the Book of Mormon has one author. So who was the author? Solomon Spaulding was dead. Sidney Rigdon apparently, well, there's a lot of <laughs> speculation. Here's Joseph Smith's own writing in 1829, about the same time as the Book of Mormon. We ran an analysis on this and compared it to the Book of Mormon to see if there's any similarities between Joseph Smith's own writing in 1829 to the Book of Mormon, which was written in 1829 and published in 1830. So here's what we found. All of those are three-word matches that appear in the Book of Mormon. The, or the, the darker orange is, is more significant. Um, I can explain that a little bit more later, but those are... Um, well, I'll, I'll explain it right now. Millennium Falcon, i use this as an example. Millennium Falcon versus he is. Those are both two words, but one is more significant because um, it has more meaning, and the other one shows up everywhere. So certain types of phrases are more significant than others, and you have to account for that when you're weighting texts 
for analysis. Otherwise, you're going to get all sorts of noise in there. So you have to wait how significant each match is, which is a baseline. We need a baseline to compare against. We, we have one. Um, so another interesting part about this is Joseph Smith, he wasn't uh, a scholar. He wasn't very educated. So he has like a weird, a weird way of talking. But he is a going to try. That is in the 1830 version of the Book of Mormon, but it's no longer in the Book of Mormon. Of course, that sounds silly. But, um, but that, to me, is fairly strong evidence that Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon. We've got his, his weird... All right, so you're muted too, just by the way. Um, just a note there, what I just showed is essentially that there are certain kinds of phrases that are these backwoods folksy kinds of things that Joseph Smith said that really aren't prevalent in other places. And those same kinds of folksy phrases find their way into the Book of Mormon. And it certainly isn't the way Moroni spoke. And it certainly isn't the way Alma spoke. And so at least on some level, there's an explanation for the handwriting analysis. And there's an explanation for who the possible author could be. That's really, really interesting. I had not heard that before, before right now. That's wonderful. That was another thing that you knew that I didn't know until yeah, a second ago. Now it's tied again. <laughs> no, I was, and what my research did was it went to Book of Mormon Central, which is, of course, a very uh, apologetic uh, pro Book of Mormon and Mormonism website. But they talk about, uh, they have an article there. It's called, Is It Possible That Only One Author Wrote the Book of Mormon? And they're going off the same idea that there's multiple authors that are represented in the Book of Mormon. And um, as I recall it, there was only for like four authors in the Book of Mormon whose words were sufficient in number to do a statistical analysis on them. And I think it was Nephi and Benjamin, maybe. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, it was Nephi, Alma, Mormon, and Moroni. Those were the only four who had enough words attributed to do this. But uh, this idea that they speak with different voices. Okay, mm -hmm. so these guys got the idea that, okay, well, let's look at other authors in Joseph Smith's time, contemporaries of Joseph Smith, mm. who wrote books that also had multiple different characters in them and see if those books have different characters who speak with different voices as opposed to one voice from the same author. And what they found I thought was really interesting. I'm surprised it's still up there on their website. Maybe it won't be after this, but um, what he says is they talk about the multiple distinct writing styles in the Book of Mormon, right? Um, several early studies using simplistic stylometric methods suggested that it is indeed possible, pay attention there, that it is indeed possible for a talented author to create multiple styles or voices for different fictional characters. Uh, they analyzed the function word patterns of fictional characters created by four highly regarded 19th century novelists, Charles Dickens, Jane Austen, Mark Twain, and James Fenimore Cooper. Their results show that to varying degrees, each author was able to create a distinct voice for multiple fictional characters, including the narrators in their stories. So this is not at all unique. In fact, it's uh, something that they see with all four of these different authors. And they say on these non-narrator voices, the character voices, they performed four separate multivariate tests 
all of which resulted in statistically significant differences among character voices. The combined data from these tests show that the differences in function word patterns among the non-narrator characters of these four authors are significant. Statistically speaking, it can be said that Mark Twain's character, Tom Sawyer, really does have a different voice than his friend, Huckleberry Finn. Mm -hmm. And that the voice of Jane Austen's Elizabeth Bennet is truly distinct from her love interest, Mr. Darcy. Mm. While these characters' voices still generally cluster together by the author who created them, they are distinct enough to consider them as statistically separate from one another. So this is actually in an article on Book of Mormon Central, at least as of this evening, under the title, Is it possible that a single author wrote the Book of Mormon? Well, why are they writing this? Well, they try and distinguish it from Joseph Smith on two bases. Joseph Smith's, the difference in his characters are bigger and he's dumber than these authors. He's less educated than these other authors, and the distinction in his characters are bigger. But that's not really a very um, convincing or persuasive, to my mind, conclusion to go to when you've kind of just given away the farm yeah. with this other research. Yeah, I love it. I love it. At the end of the day, what they're going to ask us to do is... Give Brother Joseph a break. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to do that we're going to keep at it anything else on this section no no we got to move on my gosh it's no. 6 34 we are going long we are this is a minute and 15 second video with no words being spoken and here we are uh let's play the tape <laughs> okay so i'm gonna i'm gonna stop there um let me just say really quickly, let me look at what I've got written here. Okay, so Nahum and Rhodes, there's Rhodes exist in these ancient cultures. They found some Rhodes. Nahum's over in the old world. There's Bountiful too. Um, besides that, RFM, what is the archaeological evidence? Zero. <laughs> there's no archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon in the New World, and there's debated evidence, but I think that we should be charitable in our analysis, and I think we should include um, the Nahum altars and also Bountiful in the old world mm -hmm. as described in First Nephi. But um, even so, you're dealing with, I mean, to be as charitable as possible, 5% max uh, of the Book of Mormon is supported by archeological evidence and the other 95% is not. And you were charitable there because I don't think it's that much. Let me think about this. Um, Tower of Babel, Nephite transoceanic voyage and all the problems with that, lack of connection to Israel and Native American culture, anachronisms in the Book of Mormon, such as animals, Christianity pre-Christ, quoting Third Isaiah, chariots, silk, compass, windows, use of some type of metal permeating the Book of Mormon culture and all the, the refining of that metal that goes on, uh, precious metals in a monetary exchange of some sort, reformed Egyptian, DNA, um, and then I got a couple others here I want to just quickly talk about. And again, I know we're going long. I hope uh, I hope you've got your evening blocked out for us. If we need to go at some point, we'll just do it. But I want to let me enlarge this for a moment because I think this is a big deal. It's getting bigger. Yeah, the sealed portion. By the way, we were we're told that two thirds of the book. This is by the way is the closest replica to all the the data points we have. I know there's some that show bands holding the sealed portion together. It was actually encapsulated. They said in some kind of material. 
but a third, uh, sorry, a half to two thirds of the Book of Mormon was sealed. That entire sealed portion, by the way, um, I'm trying to think how I can show this. The top portion here of the plates includes the 116 pages of the Book of Lehi. Right. So the 531 pages we have, plus the 116 pages of the Book of Lehi, this section here is entirely written by the brother of Jared. In other words, the brother of Jared would be the author of the largest portion of sacred canonical text ever in the history of mankind when it relates to Christianity and Mormonism. And there would be no other author that would even come close. It's absolutely absurd that that much of the plates is authored by Mahanri, Maury Ankimer, and that the rest of this is all those other folks that you guys have read uh, when you were reading the Book of Mormon on a daily basis. That's absolutely absurd. There's also another thing I want to point out, which is um, in, I think it's 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 1, Nephi tells us that uh, the ne uh, Lehi and his family took a bunch of seeds from the old world uh, for fruits and vegetables and all kinds of things. And then in 1 Nephi chapter 18, verse 6, when they land, they plant all those seeds and they say that the crops flourished. And when they speak of that, we have to note, and it's also, by the way, 1 Nephi 18, 24 and 25, we have to note that if those plants flourished, we should see some old world crops in the new world. And we don't. We don't. So it's also another anachronism. Anything else you've got on this section, RFM? Oh, no. This is very interesting that, as you say, if two thirds are sealed, even if, the, if you don't take the 116 pages into account, which are part of the unsealed part, you have uh, the sealed part of the record is twice as long as the Book of Mormon. It's actually longer than that because there's mm -hmm. 116 pages that got taken off the top. So it is uh, much more than two times as long as the Book of Mormon. It's and almost then, as long as the Old Testament, by the way. And this is all, all supposed to be the one, one vision. One author. Right. And But, you know, all I can say is that if you're having trouble coming up with separate plates to show witnesses, it's very handy to be able to seal this bottom two thirds, which actually are not individual plates, but it's more of a solid mass. So uh, they can't be handled by witnesses. And I hope I'm not sounding cynical here, but no. it does occur to me as a magician yeah. that this is this makes it much easier on whoever fabricated the plates. It's like yeah. having a stack of uh, $1 bills and putting 100 on the top and 100 on the bottom and making people think that they're all $100 bills. Yeah. If you're writing etchings on the plates and it's really difficult to do, you've got to figure out some way to make there look like there's more written plates when there really isn't. And having something encapsulated that nobody can look at certainly does the trick. Yeah. I don't want to get off on this, but it's so fascinating, right? Because the whole idea is that sealed, two thirds are sealed so that nobody can read them, right? That's the whole point of it is in the Book of Mormon. They're sealed so that nobody can read them. The deal is nobody can read the Book of Mormon plates that aren't sealed. <laughs> oh my goodness. The yeah. reason given for sealing the plates makes no sense because nobody can read them anyway unless they have the gift and power of God to do it. So it seems like sealing the two-thirds of the plates is completely superfluous if your goal, as the Book of Mormon says, is to keep them from being read. 
Yeah. And if the bad guys are trying to look at the plates and they will die instantly, which is also some of the stories, then you really don't need to hide the plates, do you? Because if the bad guys find them, they're going to die anyway, right? Yep, absolutely. Real wrath of God stuff. Yeah, yeah, that God, he sure is, uh, I don't know, he, he does things a certain way with sometimes, like he cancels he cancels President Nelson's uh, reservations in large arenas and then doesn't tell anybody about COVID. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a trickster. Yeah, that trickster God, he sure is a little, uh, a little funny. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, so, say, so saying that archaeological evidence supports it is technically correct, but a much larger amount of archaeological evidence not only doesn't support it, but argues against it. Yeah. Yeah. If we had the scales of justice and mercy in front of us, right? One side of the scale is all up in the air and the other one's dragging on the ground. Can I say something timely right now about this uh, Mark Hoffman documentary that just aired last week on Netflix? This is so important. We may talk about it more in a future episode. But you've got the two forensic document examiners who end up looking at the salamander letter. And this is past uh, the FBI experts. They say it is authentic. And they're, they're giving it to these other guys. And they, they are trying to find something that they can hang their hat on to prove that this is not genuine. Because they're trying to find a motive to charge Mark, Mark Hoffman because he's not even charged at this point. And one of the greatest document examiners, I think it was Throckmorton, who's there on the screen, is talking about how they're looking at it. They're looking at it. They're looking at it. Because... If they can find one anachronism, then it's game, set, match. They've proven mm. it's a forgery. Because when we deal with the Mormon apologetics, when I dealt with it, it was kind of like it's a balancing test. You know, there's some things over here that sort of way over here and some things over here way really good for the Book of Mormon. And, where's, and that's sort of that book leap of faith, right? You know, there's this balancing test. But that is not the way actual forensic document examiners look at things. If there is one anachronism, it doesn't make any difference if 99% of it is absolutely meticulous and nobody can tell that it's a fake. If there's one anachronism, the whole thing's a fake. Yeah. That's how forensic document examiners actually determine whether something is a forgery. Yeah, which is why you and I always talk about for Mormonism to survive against the critic, it has to hit out of the park every single criticism, whereas the critic only has to get like 3% of the criticisms to go through and be weighty in the in the reader's mind yeah. because just a few of them go a long way. As you point out, just one really good one tackles the whole problem. Yep. In that case, it was cracked ink under the microscope. And yeah. here the Book of Mormon, you can take your pick. The field is wide, all ready to harvest with anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, so to the point where we have to explain that tapers are horses, that uh, coins weren't really used, that there's a reason swords don't exist, and every other jot and tittle that's out there. Yeah. Okay. At some point, there's so many excuses that you got to say, come on, there's just too many excuses you got to make. If you're a rational, reasonable, logical human being, that uh, that tends to be the case. Anything else on this section? Oh, let me see. I don't think so. I think we're probably going to have to continue. No, no. Go. Let's go to the next part about intellectuals and scholars. Okay, here we go. There you go. All right. So let me back up so we can put that on the screen. Yeah. This to me, um, when I look, when I look at this 
screen of a professor in a classroom teaching. And that does not look like a BYU professor, does it? Why not? Well, first off, the facial hair. Oh, okay. Second off, I just don't see BYU professors dressing that classy. No, the turtleneck. (laughs) So what they're trying to give the viewer is this idea that intellectuals and scholars outside the church accept the truth of the Book of Mormon. And the reality is that um, there aren't any intellectuals or scholars outside of Mormonism who accept the Book of Mormon and the truth of it. And while it may seem like it's a weighty thing that there are scholars on the inside, there's Terrell Givens and Richard Bushman and Sam Brown and Patrick Mason and Claudia Bushman and Fiona Givens. And that's the handful that I usually run through. There's a bunch more. First off, the scholars, there are scholars in every religion. There are scholars in other high demand fundamentalist religions, and there are scholars in religions that even Mormons would look at and go, that's a cult. There are scholars everywhere. Second off, there are intellectuals everywhere. And I like that they mentioned both of those words. Those are two different words. I'll give an example, and I don't mean to pick on Mike Ash. I think he's one of the kinder, more reasonable apologists inside Mormonism. But you know, you're a lawyer, I'm a pawnbroker, Mike Ash is just a photographer. We're all just intellectuals who delve into the arena of scholarship, and maybe on some level people can call us scholars, but we're not in the truest sense of the word. We are the intellectuals. There are also intellectuals in every religion, including high-demand fundamentalist religions and religions, again, that believing Mormons would call cults. Yes. Any thoughts uh, on this one? Well, yeah, to the degree that says the truth of it, to the degree that they're implying that that means the historicity of it. I think it's clear from the context that that's what they mean when they say the truth of it. I think the fact of the matter is that there is no intellectual or scholar outside the church who accepts the truth of the Book of Mormon. And I'm going to say there are many, if not the majority of intellectuals and scholars inside the LDS church who do not accept the truth of it. Right. Oh, oh, hold on a minute. Wait, who's that? Who's that that just joined us? I don't know. Is this another part of the birthday surprise? No, no, no. This looks like, that looks like President Boyd K. Packer. President Packer, what do you have to say about all of this? And then RFM, I'll let you expound on what President Packer is pointing to. It is uh, so easy to be turned about without realizing that it it has happened to us. (coughs) There, there are three areas where members of the church are influenced by social and political unrest are being caught up and led away. I, uh, I chose these three because they, they've made, they have made major invasions into the membership of the church. In, in each of the temptation is for us to turn about and face the wrong way. And it is hard to resist for doing it seems so, <coughs> so reasonable and right. The dangers I speak of come from the gay and lesbian movement, uh, the feminist movement, both of which are relatively new. And the ever present challenge from the so called scholars or intellectuals. Our local leaders must deal with all three of them with ever (coughs) 
increasing frequency. Excuse me. In each case, the members who are hurting have the conviction that the church is somehow doing something wrong to members or that the church is not doing enough for them. To illustrate, I will quote briefly from the letters on each of these subjects. They are chosen from among many letters which have arrived in the last few weeks. <laughs> these have, excuse me, these have arrived in just the last. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. What was what was Boyd K? If I I think I remember reading this text. I didn't know the audio existed. We we had to delve deep into the archives to find the audio for that one. Deep research. Yeah, where this came from, RFM. Uh, what is it's 1993. It's May. It's his uh, speech to what CES or somebody. The coordinating councils or something. Oh oh, probably a correlation. The yeah. Coordinating councils. <laughs> Everything has to be coordinated and correlated in this church. It may be corrugated. Corrugated. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh, so can I give up? Can I give up the the, the the secret on that? Please. Bill Real, among his many talents, has a knack for being able to imitate the voice of Elder Boyd K. Packer even beyond the grave. <laughs> yeah, there. Everybody gets to do a voice of somebody. That's one of them that I can at least, at least you know who I'm doing. It's not that it's that great, but at least you know who I'm doing. But uh, yeah, I, I actually, the first cough was real. And then I thought, you know what, <laughs> throat. so I decided to go ahead and add a few more in. But uh, oh my gosh, you did such a great job on that. But you know, this is from 1993. This was prologue to the omen coming on to the September 6 excommunications uh, in 1993, right? And he's talking about these so-called intellectuals. And this is just, it, it's a bit cynical for this video produced by the church to now being relying as a proof of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon on intellectuals and scholars, right? Because they accept the truth of it. Therefore, smart people accept it. Therefore, it must be true. How can it not be true? But now uh, they've gone from being a hiss and a byword among the three enemies of the church, according to Boyd K. Packer, to being uh, who the leaders of the church are turning to yeah. in order to try and support it. Yeah. This is like the acknowledgement in the church essays, the gospel topics essays at the end in italics. They they have they're not attributed right, but it says the church acknowledges the contribution of scholars to the historical content presented in the article. Their work is used with permission. So the group of people who used to be a hiss and a byword among the Mormon leadership has now uh, rushed forward, I guess, to save Mormonism when it's hanging by a thread. Yeah, or are being used by the leaders to try and save Mormonism when it's hanging by a thread. I mean, the, the church's view about scholars and intellectuals appear to be like uh, most people think about lawyers, right? Everybody hates lawyers except when they need one. And the church seems to hate scholars and intellectuals except when they need them. Yeah, we used to refer to these guys as studying the ark as people who were the wrong watchmen on the tower. I think that's another Boyd K. Packer reference. Right. Um, we used to speak of these guys as they shouldn't be talking. They don't have authority. They don't have any stewardship. They don't have any right. And now here we are, 2021, and the church wants you to know that there are a few scholars out there, all inside Mormonism, who uh, accept the truth of it. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, I will speak for myself. Okay. I am one intellectual and scholar who used to accept the truth of the book of Mormon in terms of its historicity. Yeah. Now I don't. There are others as well who fall into this category. In fact, most scholars who study the Book of Mormon deeply end up either abandoning its truth claims altogether or modifying their beliefs to accommodate a Book of Mormon that is not historical, but nevertheless, in some sense, divinely inspired. Yeah, we've got Bushman on the record saying that the Book of Mormon uh, is pseudopigrapha, if I'm not mistaken, correct? I don't know. That was another thing that you know that I don't know. I, th I think Bushman has said that he was speaking of all of Joseph Smith's translation productions. And when we understand all the data collectively, that it is pseudopigrapha. Uh, I know that Terrell Givens and Patrick Mason, uh, all of these guys have private views that very much different from their public views. And having sat at the feet of some of those men, and I won't say which or which, what things were said. Um, but I remember uh, having dinner with one of them. And talking to another one with you a little off the record. Mm -hmm. And some of the comments that were made were went even a little further than what they said on the record. These men are open to the idea that much of this is uh, in the mind of Joseph Smith. Right. Even Dan Hardy. Yeah, Dan, shout out to Dan Hardy, who is an intellectual, though probably not a scholar, though I wouldn't put myself in that realm either. Um, well, he's obviously, well, he's a person who's, who locks horns with you on a regular basis yeah. on your Facebook page. Yeah, he's obviously you? very well read. He studied a lot. He knows what the issues are. And uh, this is not at all a slam on him, but I was uh, reading recently on some thread you had on your Facebook page where he made it really clear that he does believe the Book of Mormon is true. He is a faithful believing member of the church, but based on his research, he does not believe the Book of Mormon is historical. Don't forget either. Research is not the answer, by the way. That's one of the reasons because you're going to end up like Dan Hardy. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, Dan openly says, look, I just believe it's, it's a fictional product that came out of the mind of Joseph Smith with spiritual teachings coming across from heavenly father and the Holy ghost. So there right. you go. Shout out to Dan Hardy. Good job, brother. And once again, not a slam on him at all, but I'm no. just using him as an example of someone who's a faithful and continues to be a faithful member of the church who has studied the issues related to the Book of Mormon and has ended up apparently abandoning belief in its historical claims. Yeah. Amen. Anything else in this section? No. Okay. Here we go back to the uh, video and we'll, we're getting there. I'll be really quick right here. It's the same argument we made earlier. Joseph had plenty of time to come up with the idea. It wasn't done in 65 days. They talk about the, the actual dictation taking place with Oliver Cowdery in 65 days, but there were lots of off days in between that too. There were lots of off days in between the 116 lost pages and Cowdery showing up in town to help. And there was plenty of years before to prepare a storyline and work out the angles and twists and turns of the narrative. Right. And I like how they say uh, you must uh, take no longer than 65 days as if uh, more than two months is a short period of time. Right. I, I wonder if you and I really were told, like, I'll give you a million bucks. You've got 65 days. I'm, right I'm there. Narrative. I bet I bet you or I could put something halfway decent together. Oh, yeah. Especially if we're dictating it and somebody else has to get the writer's cramp. Yeah. And I highly doubt it'd be chloroform in print. Oh, no. It would be so interesting. 
Love it. Anything else on this one? Uh, we talked about Lucy Max Smith and the stories from six years before. So, um, nope, nope. Uh, and this was something that was hard for me to let go of as an apologist, yeah. even though it made sense. I wanted the 65 days so badly from April to June of 1829 because it was so appealing. But then I had to start saying, no, you know, he had years, years to start coming up with it. Even though the 65 days does appear to be the time of dictation of the Book of Mormon as we have it today. It's not like, okay, uh, here's the challenge. Now go. Yeah. And let me add one little thing. It just came to mind right now, which I think, uh, I think is a, is a cool thought. Maybe you can argue that it isn't. The idea that Moroni shows up, what is it, 1822? Three. 1823. That's right. He gets the second seer stone, the brown egg-shaped one in 1822, digging September the September 21st. Yeah. So September 21st, 1823, he meets with Moroni. Each year, he has to go home and tell his family, I can't have the plates yet. I need more time. One argument could be that Joseph Smith needs more time to finish off the narrative and to make some type of object that looks and feels like plates. And so when Joe Smith in his head goes, this is going to be a really easy project. Next September, I'll have this thing ready and we'll fool everybody. And then September rolls around 1823, 1824, 1825, 1826, 1827. He has to keep putting these off because he needs more time. If you don't buy into that the Book of Mormon is historical, then you need another reason for why Joseph Smith is always putting everybody off and needing another year and creating the narrative and the object of the plates seems to be the best logical reasonable match if you're taking a secular approach. Yes. What is Moroni communicating to him on these annual nocturnal visits? <laughs> oh, I almost want to combine that with a little talk from President Packer, but I won't. <laughs> no, really? What the heck? I mean, that's the whole, that's the story, right? right? What on earth is he telling him? Because we never find out really. No, we get a little blip here or there. You know, there was a little scripture repeated three times. and But that was the first night. Yeah. He's not going out to the hill, right? No. And and how come Heavenly Father and hence Moroni can't know that Alvin's going to die and hence not tell Joseph to bring Alvin with him anyway? I know. Well, that was unfortunate. That was yeah. not anticipated. It was kind of like this, I don't know, pandemic. Yeah. And then he tells, then he tells Samuel Lawrence, you're the guy, you're the guy, Samuel. And then he changes his mind a few months later and then it's Emma. So, yes. Yeah. There's only one constant. Joseph has to be one of the two. Yeah. Joseph has to always be there. He's one person goes up the hill, leaving Emma in the wagon. And one person comes back down the hill, carrying the plates. Something tells me that if it was Joseph's appendix that burst instead of Alvin's, we wouldn't have a book of Mormon. I think you're probably right. <laughs> okay anything else we'll continue no that's it we're here to the i think the last and yeah. the biggest evidence that the book of mormon is true indeed how can it not be true when we consider this last one the biggest of them all here we go <laughs> and the music is coming to a crescendo. The strings are, are going wild as we come up to this most important thing. Volunteer missionaries witness the truth of it. And by the way, the last 20 seconds are substance free. 
this video actually is only 56, 57 seconds before that statement on the screen disappears, that volunteer missionaries witness the truth of it, and then it just gives the logo of the church. So this is really a one-minute video that you and I have gone on now for about an hour and 40 minutes. What are your thoughts on volunteer missionaries witness the truth of it? This, this is the climactic uh, ending. This is where you and I go back to church and start being active again. What's the problem here, RFM? Look, I was one of these volunteer missionaries, okay? I'm a dumb kid, all right? I'm doing what I think I'm supposed you to do. Speechless there for a second. I've never seen you speechless. Well, this I don't know. I don't know what to say, except this is so weak. But I do think I understand why they put this here. This is a missionary video that church members are instructed by the church to forward to their non-member friends. And the reason they put this at the end is to introduce the idea of the missionaries so that these non-member friends can now be set up to meet with them and get the discussions. Yeah, that's the whole idea. These guys, these guys that are in your home right now showing you this video, these guys know it's true. Hence, you can know it's true. Yes, because remember, the only reason for having non-member friends when you are a Mormon is to convert them to Mormonism. Yeah, you got it. Or that sounds harsh, but and but it's ninety nine percent true. Yeah, and let's just note there are volunteers elsewhere. The Sea Org for Scientology pays its folks like seventeen cents a day. Um, they're out there doing things, and Scientologists are witnessing to the truth. I've had Jehovah's Witnesses show up at my door and knock. Volunteers from the local congregation sharing with me the truth of the Jehovah Witnesses. Um, again, this really is an evidence of pretty much nothing. I know this is like the bookend of the scholars and intellectuals. It's like really smart people accept the truth of it and really dumb people do too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Smart people and dumb people, old people with some wisdom and some learned knowledge, as well as young people who are very ignorant and naive. And I'm including myself in that, by the way. I just <laughs> want to make that clear. I love it. And let's just note that that kid right there holding the Book of Mormon, getting ready to testify of his truthfulness. Yeah. He doesn't even know that the Book of Mormon was translated in it with a seer stone in the hat yet. It's unlikely, Captain. <laughs> I want to note before we finish up here, and I'm happy to stay around and take a few phone calls if you want to. I'm also happy sure. to phone calls if you're short on time. Sure. Uh, I just want to note, Dr. Moore, I think, donated uh, to the podcast four times during the YouTube, during our presentation tonight. I just want to say thank you. I love Dr. Moore. I'm a big fan of Dr. Moore. <laughs> I know Dr. Nor, Dr. Moore. I've worked with Dr. Moore, and you, Bill Real, are no Dr. Moore. <laughs> So just a note, thank you to everybody who donated in the program tonight. If you want to donate and ensure that almost 100% gets to me and RFM, please go to mormonismlive.org. I know it's easier sometimes for people on YouTube. By all means, thank you. No criticism of you. Keep doing it. For folks who want to donate another way, go to mormonismlive.org. Click the donate button. We have a campaign there. I don't remember what the amount was, but I think we're trying to raise 30000 here in year number one on Mormonism Live. And uh, and we've got a little head start to do that. So we appreciate everybody who's uh, thrown some money in the cookie jar uh, this week uh, and in weeks previous. Thank uh, you, everybody who has contributed. And please keep it up. Oh, Bill, Bill, you've got to yeah. finish the video. Oh, well, sure. We can finish it. And then that's the big finale. Yeah, that'll give me a second to put the uh, the banner up. So let's do it. After uh -huh. all this uh, weighty evidence that's been presented in 58 seconds, here is, of course, the rhetorical question. How can it not be true?
How can it not be true, Bill? By the way, I love the orange on the background. Yeah. It's my favorite color. Yeah, the orange, it, it does, it is eye-catching, whether it's attractive or not. Um, <laughs> all right, now I gotta get to uh, so people say about me, by the way. <laughs> okay, so with our number 435 200 3478 or 200 fist. I fist. So if anybody wants to call in, we'd love to patch you through. You can be on the air with RFM and myself. We'd love to have a few uh, a few calls from you guys uh, about what you thought tonight. I think RFM, we decimated that 57 seconds of substance, which really wasn't, and the last 20 seconds of how can it be true with the logo of the church. I think we completely answered how it cannot be true. And I think anybody watching this will lose complete confidence in the weight of the argument that the church was trying to present there. I think you and I hit it out of the park, my friend. Well, thank you. I think it's a very effective video if you don't know anything about the Book of Mormon. Yeah. In fact, I, I think I heard the crowd after we got done. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, folks. It is 1435-200-3478. 1435-200-3478. If anybody wants to call in, we still got 186 people that are watching really hi everybody yeah we love you guys and uh, again yeah happy does birthday. no one want to call in nobody wants to talk to us rfm they're all oh. trying to pick their jaws up off the floor as their testimonies whatever whatever folks were listening and watching that their testimonies were still there they are now gone the they testimonies have, have left the building yeah yeah in fact here's what i think about some of those testimonies and what happened to them during this episode Gilbriel, <laughs> Mr. Sound Effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can. I we, love them. Yeah, I love it too. Um, all right. If nobody's got a call, we'll wait about another minute or so. And if nobody's going to call in, we'll call it a night. I think we have five minutes left for the bearing of testimonies. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to. Be, yeah, I remember that. And I, I used to know at the exact moments to shed a tear and cry to get the group that I was talking to to feel the emotion of what I was saying. I think we were all manipulators. In one way or another. I still am. Yeah. <laughs> Some of us still are, but I'm so good at it that you can't recognize it. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. the mark of a master manipulator when you don't know you're being manipulated. Don't have a clue. Um, they're getting lots of happy birthdays here to you, RFM. So. Thank you very much, everybody. I really, really appreciate it. This is the best birthday ever. Yeah. Look, at it, it took 104 minutes to break down 57 <laughs> seconds of video. You've got to be glad it wasn't three minutes long. Uh, here's a here's a call coming in. Call from. Caller, you are on the air with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. Uh, state your name first, and then tell us what's on your mind. Um My question is about <clears throat> the evidence that uh, RFM kind of was talking about being generous. Yeah, the five percent and bountiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to know, is there any, like, objective proof, or not, I shouldn't say objective proof, I should say, is there any um, objective archaeologist that would agree with what's coming out of um, Fair Mormon and Farms and, and those groups? And I'll go ahead and hang up and let you answer. Thank you, my friend. RFM, is there any evidence? Yeah, is there any evidence that the outside world would go? That's pretty strong. Like I don't believe it still, but that's pretty. No, there's none. There are zero of them. 
And that is why uh, the apologists, regardless of their scholarly expertise and their, you know, their degrees and everything, why they are not able to publish in non-LDS journals. Yeah. So LDS yeah. journals, LDS have their own journals that they publish their own things in and they cannot publish outside of them. They're apologetic stuff because it wouldn't be accepted with peer review. It might explain why certain people like John Gee don't really like peer review. Yeah, I heard about that. He doesn't like peer review. No, no, he doesn't. In a peer-reviewed journal of Egyptology, right. he makes the argument that he doesn't like peer review. <laughs> now, to be clear, to be clear, John Gee does have papers published in non-LDS journals, but they're not apologetic pieces. They're not about the Book of Abraham. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we have call number two. State your name and what's on your mind. Hey, this is Randy. Uh, hey, can, uh, Bill, can RFM hear me as well? Sometimes he can, sometimes he can't. Well, I think he can always hear you, he, but you can't always hear him. Can you hear me, Randy? Aw. Well, happy birthday, RFM. And I'm like, uh, so many people are watching, and I, and I um, why aren't people calling us? Good grief. This is birthday. Hey, you were, Bill, your spot, you were getting spot on, and your boy K is awesome. I can't think of the, the young guy who does all the impersonations so good, but I was thinking, uh-oh, is that Bill or is that other guy? He goes, ooh, you got it down. Mormonism live. Better than Hello? touching your own little factory. Hello? Yeah, yeah. I was just playing the Boyd K. Packer that Mormonism live is better than touching your own little factory. Yeah, breaking news. Boyd uh, K. Packer did not actually say uh, that. Listen, uh, can I, can I uh, make a personal uh, statement uh, toward both you and, and RFM? Is that okay? Please. Personal? I'm sorry. I can't. I'm, I'm having trouble here for some reason. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Please. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and I always, you know, I come across as, as a, um, a gushy gut sometimes. But my philosophy is, um, by the way, I'm RFA's age. I'm actually about six months younger if today is his birthday. So I can, I can uh, relate to him. And um, as I was going through my transition in the hardest parts, there, there's a handful of, of people that helped me, you know, that I don't know, like you guys, uh, helped me very much. Uh, RFM is one of them. And uh, you are as well, Bill. I could really relate to your story, like a Mormon uh, Stories podcast interview. Yeah. I was with him. I was, and then at the very, and uh, it was, you know, I'm, I'm a convert as well and all these yeah. things. And so I have been able to, I personally uh, relate to both of you in my journey. I've been on about two years. But as I, um, uh, I remember some of the stuff you said, like one thing that really caught me off guard at the time, this is right as I was leaving out, Bill, where you said, um, on your Mormon Stories podcast, it got to toward the end about the, the your, your how you feel now about Jesus and everything. And I remember how hard it hit me because I was so vested. I was like, you know, with you, and, and I had all this great love for you. And right, and toward the end, you're like, oh, Bill, no, you believe in Jesus anymore? No, Bill, no, you know, right? Yeah. And so, um, uh, and, but further down the road, I I see things differently, and I imagine as I continue further down the road and grow, and your almost awakened podcast has always been a, has been a, a big help to me too. I you know talk about that much here, but I've done a lot of self work. But I just wanted to express my appreciation because my philosophy is I don't have much time I got left, and if I ever have a chance to say a sincere thing, even though it's a little gushy, I'm going to do it, and I just want you to know genuinely how much I appreciate it. Uh, everything you guys have done. So, all right, enough gushing. Okay, here, here's here's uh, two two questions, two things. I made them in the comments. One is um, about in the Lucy Mac Smith history. I, I even posted the, the quote in the uh, your comments. 
but how she she talks about they're they're in, inv- invoking I forget the word at the moment, but invoking the uh, faculties of Abarak, and Abarak is where the uh, you know the word Abracadabra comes from from magicians, and so that's a pretty pretty you know pretty interesting thing in my mind. And the other thing is, correct me if I'm wrong, because I can't I don't have the source on hand. Wasn't ne- uh, Nephi the one that delivered the plates back in Joseph Smith's time in, in the very early history? Didn't he tell the story of Nephi, or am I wrong? Okay, yeah, let so me. So those are my those are my two questions. A okay. gush, a big gush, and two questions. So I'll hang up and let you guys talk about it. Love it. I'll hang up with you. Thank you. Um, I haven't done enough exploration into the use of Nephi early on, but I, I what well, my understanding is that maybe it wasn't said exactly that way, and then Cowdery's writing something else down for one of the church periodicals back in the day and uses the term Nephi and says Joseph Smith said so, but we don't have Joseph Smith's own words claiming that uh, Nephi was said. Does that ring a bell, RFM? Yeah, there's well, there's one document in which Nephi is used instead of Moroni. And I don't know if that's just a, um, uh, what, you know, I sometimes misuse a name for somebody when I think it's someone else. Yeah. But, but, um, a slip of the tongue. Let me see here. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, there's something about Nephi. Uh, his name was Nephi. It said he was from the presence of God and his name was Nephi. So, and I don't know that that's really particularly explosive only because I misuse people's names. Uh, with some frequency, even if I'm writing. So I can see that as a, just a simple typo. It occurred on one occasion. I don't know that it was actually originally Nephi and then it got changed to Moroni. Though I suppose it's a possibility about uh, uh, Lucy Mac Smith. Yeah, they, they would, she practiced um, the faculty of Abrac, which is actually the seventh degree of Abracadabra. And I won't go into that any further, but I could draw you a picture if you want. Love it. I love it. Um, we've got our last call of the night, if that's okay, RFM. We've got one more phone call. Okay. You are our final caller. And, uh, and folks, uh, we appreciate everybody tuning in. I, I really enjoyed uh, putting this episode together. RFM, you are great. Uh, and so this was a lot of fun. The last caller, state your name and, and what's on your mind. Roger. Happy birthday, RFM. Thank you. I just wanted to mention that as a missionary many years ago, we used the, the film strip uh, Christ in America constantly. And we pushed the idea that Christ came to America. We showed pictures in the Book of Mormon at that time that they had in the little blue Book of Mormon of the two different colored people, the white people and the dark people. And we used to show all the evidences that the Book of Mormon was true and that we should follow this because it was a true record of Jesus Christ coming to America. And now this is all coming crashing down and everything I taught uh, was absolutely false. And I just feel so embarrassed and so humiliated at being used to preach that false doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. They don't show those kinds of videos anymore. They don't show the pictures of the pyramids and uh, you know, South American lands or Central American lands in the middle of your book of Mormon anymore. All you get now is crickets. Yeah, where are all the Lamanites at? Thank you, Roger. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Right. Yeah, the, the, we had a film strip too in Japan. It was called, uh, it was the, the Christ in America. It was Kodai America Wakataru, which means ancient America speaks. Right? Yeah, Kodai America Wakataru. But we, I, I don't know if they still use it. was a film strip actually. 
You had to wait for the beep. And if you were really good, you didn't have to use the beep. You could use the flip side of the tape without the beeps. That was when you were a really good missionary. That's how wow. you could tell. Yeah, they had pictures like of Machu Picchu, Gesundheit, in the Book of Mormon. It was like, you know, find any kind of ancient um, uh, civilization and buildings and ruins. It doesn't make any difference where in the Americas they were or what time period. You know, just throw them in there because it's, right. it's evidence for the Book of Mormon. Um, the church doesn't doubt any of that anymore. It's gone. Like we're not, we're not, we're not dragging Hugh Nibley's works out anymore. We're not dragging, uh, you know, ancient American evidences into into church meetings. They don't want that anywhere near what we're what we're doing in the two hour block. No, but archaeology supports it. Yeah, but uh, but what but Randy's talking about there. This is one of my fundamental disappointments. Uh, joining the church in 1978 with this whole air of enthusiasm and optimism, and that we could prove. The Book of Mormon, true by archaeology and other sciences. And then over four decades, that has fallen by the wayside one by one by one by one. And then the DNA comes in and that's bad news. So it's gone from being uh, a positive force for proving something true to now it's all defensive. And we have to make up excuses why all the evidence on every front is against us. Yeah, yeah, there, there's nothing left. The, the bookshelf for most people when they dive down the rabbit hole is so heavy, it has no choice but to give way and tumble and break apart into pieces um, and, and decimate to, to nothing. Um, I, I guess I, I think we're done. I think that's it. I, I don't have anything left for us. I just so, have one question for you in closing. Yeah, please. How can it not be true? 